One of the stories that has the most to do with me becoming a professional storyteller is a story from the Brothers Grimm called The Juniper Tree. This is a story that I first encountered about 40 years ago, and I found it so strange and so horrifying and so weirdly beautiful. I didn't know how to think about it. I didn't know what to do with it. The story tells of a woman who conceives such an intense, sort of mind-altering hatred of her husband's little boy that she murders the child. And then, in a panic to cover her tracks, she cuts the child up and she cooks him into a stew, which she then feeds to the father. And then the the boy, from his bones, is reborn as a bird. And the bird flies off into the world singing this strange song about how his mother butchered him and his father ate him. And it's kind of a long story. The bird has lots of sort of strange encounters and then returns to the house and ultimately destroys the woman in this sort of great flame. And then out of the flame, the child is reborn. So it's kind of a lot to get your head around, that story. So on my 22nd birthday, I interrupted my party, and I filed everyone into the living room, and I sat down and I told them the story of the juniper tree. And I don't know that that made me understand the story any better, but it certainly opened my eyes to the incredible power of telling and listening to stories. And I spent a lot of time with that story, uh, performing it and studying it in, in German and different versions of it. And I was astonished a few decades later when I was doing a very deep dive into the story of Electra for the Metropolitan Opera. I was working with some teachers on Richard Strauss's opera Electra, and I had to delve into the curse of the House of Atreus. And lo and behold, there's the grim fairy tale um, at the origin of this incredibly important and complex myth. The curse of the House of Atreus is kind of a gigantic planet in the solar system of Greek mythology, and it, it exerts a tremendous gravitational pull. It certainly casts a long shadow over the story of the Odyssey, especially Telemachus, Odysseus's son. In the last episode, episode three, Athena in disguise was urging Odysseus's son, Telemachus, to go out into the world and find news about his missing father. And also she urges him to seek revenge on the suitors, the men who have taken over Odysseus's home in his absence. And she tells him that Orestes has killed Aegisthus. 
he has killed the man who killed his father. And this shadow hangs over Telemachus for the whole story, that he must avenge the wrong that has been done to his father's house. And we we hear hints about the story of Agamemnon and his cursed family throughout the Odyssey. So hello, I'm Tom Lee, and this is the Odyssey Odyssey, the podcast that tells the story of the Odyssey and the stories that surround the story of the Odyssey. And today we're going to take a sharp detour away from the main narrative and dive into this curse of the house of Atreus, of whom Orestes is such an important figure. He's kind of the end of the line, but he really puts his mark on the Odyssey at the very beginning. And I have to jump in here and say that the whole of this little saga turned out to be too long for a single episode. So I'm only telling the first half of it, uh, sort of the prequel to the curse of the House of Atreus in this episode. And before I dive into that, I want to say a word about all the names that are coming up in all of these myths. One of the most distinctive things about mythology as opposed to folk tales, is that every character, even the, the smallest character in every myth, has a name, has an identity. In most cases, has a whole lineage. We, we learn every character's parents and, and grandparents and, and the, all of their backstories. And this doesn't happen when you're telling a folk tale. Very often, in most cases, in folk tales, the characters don't even have names. Uh, the ones that we tend to know have sort of names. Red Riding Hood, that's not really a name, but it's how we identify her. Hansel and Gretel, uh, that means sort of Jack and Jill. It really could be any name at all. But but most characters in most folktales all around the world, they don't have names. They're called the oldest son, the youngest son, the princess, the king, the mother, the old woman. And this makes them, I think, a lot easier to listen to in the abstract. Whereas in myth, every character has an identity. Nobody's worried about the name of Little Red Riding Hood's grandmother. Nobody wants to know who Little Red Riding Hood's grandmother's mother was or where she was born, or who her husband was, or how she came to be living in that house in the woods. We just accept these. It's, it's part of the story. But if these characters were characters in myth, we would know all of those things about all of those characters. And I think it's important to remember that in ancient Greece, you had a lifetime to immerse yourself in these stories, in these characters. You would hear them over and over again. And you would come to a familiarity with these names, I think almost akin to sort of relatives in your family, sorting out these mythological family trees. And in fact, a lot of people in ancient Greece traced their lineage back to certain characters in mythology. Even the way today there are people who look at the descendants of Noah, the sons of Noah, and determine where they went in the world and and see them as as their ancestors, as their, their personal ancestors. In Steve Reich's amazing uh, multimedia musical piece, The Cave, there's a long narrative by a man who says that he sees Abraham as his 
ancestor, as his personal ancestor in his own family tree. And we know that some ancient Greek people felt the same way about the characters in mythology. It's also nice to know that by about 200 AD, there were several important books that were anthologies of Greek myth, where authors tried to get everything down and sort out all the names and all the characters and all the stories. There was one, uh, the Bibliotheca of Apollodorus, and this is almost a thousand years after the Odyssey sort of crystallizes into the form that we know now. And I want to read you just one sentence from this where he's talking about a character named Niobe. Niobe bore seven sons and the same number of daughters. But Hesiod says that she had ten sons and ten daughters. Herodotus that she had two male and three female children. And Homer says that she had six sons and six daughters. So all of that to say, if you feel like you can't tell the players without a program, uh, don't worry about it. You're not alone and you're certainly not the first. But the story that I want to tell today begins with the character of Tantalus. Now, this is a name that that you may know. Uh, Most people know that this character Tantalus is the person who gives us the word tantalize. And if you know even a little bit more about Tantalus, you'll know that he's one of the most famous characters in the underworld. He's one of the most famous punishments in Hades. We often hear about Sisyphus in the underworld who's pushing an enormous stone, rolling the stone up this great hill, and as soon as he gets to the top, it rolls back to the bottom again, and he has to begin this process over and over again in eternity. There's a great line in a Saki story where someone calls their their car the envy of Sisyphus because it goes quite well uphill, darling, if you push. And of course, we hear about Prometheus, who gave fire to humans and is punished by being chained to a rock and having an eagle come and eat out his liver every day. And then in the night, his liver grows back and the eagle returns day after day after day. These are the, the famous tortured souls in Hades. And it's it's worth pointing out that not everybody got such a sort of spectacular or memorable punishment you really had to commit a great offense against the gods to get one of these sort of marquee punishments. And by the way, this is as good a place as any for me to beat my drum, that there is no flame in Hades. There's no fire in the ancient Greek underworld. Everybody, for hundreds and hundreds of years, we've conflated this sort of medieval Christian idea of hell with the classical Greek idea of Hades. Even, and you know you don't want to get me started. Walt Disney's Hercules has Hades as a character who is made entirely of flame. There is no flame in Hades. It's cold, it's dark, and if you weren't already dead, you'd probably be bored to death. But back to the punishment of Tantalus. Tantalus is in a pool of water, or some people say wine, that comes right up to his chin, almost up to his lips. And above his head are the most luscious fruits dangling from branches. They're so close. Some writers say that the fruits rest on his shoulder. And Tantalus is starving. Every time he bends to sip the water of the pool, 
it disappears. It drains out more quickly than he can even take a single drop. And if he turns his head to bite one of those luscious, succulent fruits, they spring into the air. The branches reach just beyond his reach. He can reach as far as he can, but he can never get them. In short, the food tantalizes him. So this is a very famous image, but what did he do to deserve this punishment? The punishment of Tantalus, in a perverse way, very much fits his crime. Not the crime of greed. A lot of times you read these versions that he was a greedy king. Uh, it's, it's much worse than that. Tantalus was the son of Zeus and the nymph Pluto, who is not to be confused with the Roman god of the underworld, Pluto. That's just to make things more confusing. But he was a child of Zeus, and Zeus loved Tantalus. And Tantalus was welcomed at the feasts of the gods. And there was an occasion when the gods were to come to Tantalus's home and to feast at Tantalus's table. This was an enormous honor for Tantalus to welcome all of the great gods and goddesses into his home. And as that one sentence has six different versions of Niobe's children, there are many different possibilities of how and why Tantalus did what he did. Some people say that he simply didn't have enough food, which to me seems unlikely. You're going to plan ahead for a dinner like this. And other people say that he wanted to test the gods' omniscience. He wanted to know if the gods were truly, truly wise. But for whatever reason, he did a horrifying and very unwise thing. He took his own child, his son Pelops, and he killed his own son. He butchered him and he cooked him into a stew, which he then served to the immortals. And the gods and goddesses instantly knew, they were omniscient, and they instantly knew what they had been served, and they were horrified, and they completely rejected this, except for one. The story says that Demeter, who was so distracted by the loss of her own daughter Persephone, who had been abducted into the underworld, she was so distraught and distracted that she wasn't paying attention to what she was eating, and she actually ate the shoulder of Tantalus's son. But the gods decided that Tantalus would instantly be destroyed, killed, and sent to the underworld to this eternal punishment, but that his son, Pelops, would be brought back to life. So they called on Clotho, and Clotho is one of the three fates who spin and draw out and cut the threads that are human lives. Clotho is responsible for the length of a person's life on earth. And she took all the pieces of poor Pelops, she put them back into the same cauldron, and with the aid of Zeus, she restored Pelops to life, except for his shoulder blade, which Demeter had eaten, and that was replaced with a shoulder blade of ivory. But Pelops emerged from this cauldron so beautiful, so magnificently reborn, that Poseidon fell hopelessly in love with this boy and kept him there on Mount Olympus for many years as his lover. And at the end of this affair, Pelops was sent back to earth to 
rule over his father's kingdom. And on the way, he enters into a story that could certainly be the root of dozens of other fairy tales. Once upon a time, there was a king who had a daughter more beautiful than words can describe. And every man far and wide wished to marry this princess. And they came to the king, but the king did not want any man to marry his daughter. So he created a test, a test that was absolutely impossible to pass. If you wished to marry the princess, you had to submit to the test. And if you failed, you were killed. There are countless fairy tales that follow this pattern, and their origin may well be the story of Onimaeus and his daughter Hippodamia. Onimaeus was a great king. He ruled not far from Mount Olympus. His daughter, Hippodamia, was more beautiful than words can describe, and men came from far and near to ask for her hand in marriage, but the king, for reasons of his own, did not wish for his daughter ever to marry. Now, there are two possible reasons. One involves an oracle, and this kind of happens a lot in Greek mythology. He was told by an oracle that if his daughter married, his son-in-law would kill him. So that would explain why he would never want his daughter to marry. But there's a much more sinister possibility, which is that he was having an incestuous affair with his daughter. And and this very creepy idea strangely turns up in a Shakespeare play, a play called Pericles, Prince of Tyre. It's maybe one of the, the least performed of Shakespeare plays. It's one of my favorite. And it's based on a medieval story, which is based on a Latin story, which is based on, you guessed it, a Greek story. The original Greek story is lost, but uh, we have a Latin version of it. And this king asks anyone who wants to marry his daughter a riddle. And if you can guess the riddle, you can marry the daughter. But the answer to the riddle is that the king and the daughter are having an incestuous affair. And no one wants to articulate this. Once they realize the answer to the riddle, no one will answer it. And they fail, and the king chops their heads off. And his daughter doesn't get married. And this, I think, is probably what's really going on with Onimaeus and Hippodamia. And the contest that Onimaeus dictated for anyone to marry his daughter was a chariot race. You had to race the princess's father, and Onimaeus always won for two reasons. He had the fastest horses. His horses were the children of the north wind, and there were no horses faster than his. And he always made his daughter ride in the chariot with the suitor, and the suitor would be so distracted by his daughter's beauty uh, that he would, wouldn't be able to focus on the chariot race. And at the point when it was obvious that they were going to lose the race, Onimaeus would throw his bronze spear and kill the suitor, and their heads were displayed above the gate of his palace. And this is what Pelops saw as he approached the kingdom. But Pelops had friends in high places. He had friends who would certainly be able to help him win a horse race. 
because he was the former lover of the god Poseidon, and Poseidon was the god of horses. And we know this story from a somewhat unlikely and kind of wonderful source. The year 476 BC was one of the years that the Olympic Games were held in their four-year cycle. And a man named Hiron, who was the son of a man named Dinomenes, won in the horse race. If you won in the Olympic Games in 476 BC, uh, you did not get a contract with Nike. Nike was too busy being the goddess of victory. She wasn't making shoes at that time. And you didn't get your face on a Wheaties box. But what you got was a poem written about you to celebrate your achievement. And one of the greatest poets who wrote these victory odes was a poet named Pindar. And he wrote an ode to this horse racer, Hiron, son of Dinomenes. And in the course of the ode, he tells the story of Pelops and Poseidon. Pelops is in desperate need of a horse. And who are you going to go to if you need a horse but your old boyfriend, Poseidon, who is the god of horses? And Pelops went to the edge of the sea, and he called on Poseidon. And there's this beautiful image of Poseidon rising up at Pelops's feet, emerging from the sea and asking what he needs. And Pelops says, I need the fastest horses, faster than any horses on earth. And Poseidon tells him not to worry. He will give him horses with golden wings that fly faster than the winds. So he should be guaranteed to win this contest against King Onimaeus. However, there's another version, or possibly a, a twist in this version of the story, that says that even with this amazing chariot and horses given to him by Poseidon, Pelops still wasn't absolutely convinced that he could win this race, he decides to resort to sabotage. And meanwhile, it should be said that Hippodamia, the princess, has fallen hopelessly in love with Pelops, and she very much wants him to succeed in this race and take her away. So they collude in a bribe to the king's charioteer. The king's charioteer is called Myrtilus, and Keep your eye on him. He's going to become extremely important in this story. And they bribe Myrtilus to sabotage the king's chariot in exchange possibly for gold or possibly for the favors of Princess Hippodamia on her wedding night before Pelops sleeps with Hippodamia for the first time. He will allow the charioteer Myrtilus to sleep with his own wife. And again, different sources tell the story different ways. Whether it was money or the promise of love, in either case, the bribe was sufficient to cause Myrtilus to betray the king. And he took the pins out of the axles of the king's chariot and he replaced them with wax pins so that when the chariot went faster and faster, the pins would melt and the wheels would fall off. And that's exactly what happened. Pelops and the princess Hippodamia were in one chariot, and King Onimaeus and Myrtilus were in the other one, 
and Pelops's chariot given to him by Poseidon raced faster than any chariot on earth had ever gone before. Onimaeus, desperate to catch up to his daughter, went faster and faster, and the pins in the axles melted, the wheels fell off, and Onimaeus was killed. Myrtilus, the charioteer, survived and went with Pelops and the princess home to their kingdom. The course of this chariot race was incredibly long, hundreds of miles long, and so they had a long way to head home. And on the way, how surprised will you be, gentle listener, if I tell you that Pelops decided to renege on his promise to the charioteer, whether it was to be gold or a night of love with Hippodamia, Pelops decided that the best thing to do was to silence Myrtilus forever so he could never reveal the secret of how he had sabotaged the race. So as they were passing the sea, Pelops gave Myrtilus a kick. He thrust him out of the chariot and into the ocean where he drowned. But just before he died, he cursed Pelops and all of his descendants. And this is the beginning of the curse of the house of Atreus. Atreus hasn't been born yet, but this is the curse. His father, Pelops, has just received this curse from the dying charioteer. Myrtilos himself was the son of Hermes, so it was not a good idea to kill him. But this curse, and I often wonder why it's not called the curse of the house of Pelops, this curse is going to escalate. And here we are at the end of this episode, and we're only halfway through the story. In the next episode, we'll see how the two sons of Pelops, Thyestes and Atreus, battle for power and seek revenge on each other in a way that harkens all the way back to the sin of Tantalos and becomes a, a truly, truly gruesome story. So you can look forward to that. And this is the point in the episode where I remind you that we have no advertising or subscriptions. I'm producing this program to let people know that I'm out here, that I work as a storyteller in schools and museums, theaters, libraries. And it's probably worth stating specifically that when I work with children, I have many wonderful stories that I tell, but the stories such as you heard today are not included. How are you listening to the program? It's now available on iTunes and it's available on Spotify, but I sort of have no idea how people are tuning in. I see that people are listening and I love hearing from people, but I don't know how people are, are getting to me. If you go to my website, www.tomleestoryteller.net, uh, there's a podcast page there and I'm including what I'm calling the footnotes to each episode, which is lots of links to the images that I mention, some YouTube clips, uh, links to literary references, all kinds of fun things that you can poke around in. And you can also uh, email me from that website. I'd love to hear from you with questions or comments. If you find yourself in Old Lyme, Connecticut on February 19th, I'm going to be performing at the beautiful Florence Griswold Museum at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. They have a great exhibit on right now on dreams and memories, and they thought uh, storytelling would be a great way to explore that theme. 
And I have to say I agree. So come on down and be sure to say hello if you do. So until next time, I'm Tom Lee. Thanks for listening.